Hello and welcome to this week, a postcard that brings you conversation about Africa in the news. From pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious in all corners of Africa, we bring you controversial news on teams with a fresh, educational, informative, and diverse perspective. We challenge long-standing beliefs as well as will of thinking and doing things. My name is Jalili, your host for today's edition of This Week. Please make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa This Week in your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and many more. Finally, join our discourse community to continue the conversation. New episodes arrive by weekly on Wednesday. Hello, this weekites. How are you all doing today? Hi, guys. Okay. I'm doing good. That's great. How are today. you? Yeah, I'm doing great. What about you, Peter? I'm doing fantastic. It's been a, a very productive week and a good week and certainly ready to talk about a lot of different interesting things going on this week as well. And we are going to get started with you today, Peter. So what is it that has been on your mind this week? What's been on my mind this week is this concept of global summits. A lot of summits have been taking place. There has been the Global Education Summit that was co-hosted by Boris Johnson and Huru Kenyatta from Kenya over the last couple of days. And they were raising money to fund education projects around the world and have a conversation about global education. So there's that summit. There's also a summit, the United Nations Global Food System Summit, that will be coming up next month. That is in September. I think, Ghana, you're going to really appreciate our conversation on this as being a food systems expert. You know, COVID-19 has made us think a lot about a lot of things. It's made us think about issues of socioeconomic development, issues of electricity, issues of public goods provision, things of that nature. It's also made us think about the vulnerabilities of food systems in the context of this pandemic. So I think this global summit that is coming up is situated against this backdrop of the disruptions that COVID-19 has influenced in all countries around the world. It has had a major impact. And so the conference aims to do a lot of things. It aims to bring together stakeholders from across the world. It talks about on the summit website that, that the need is urgent, and I'm quoting here, and our ambition is high. The UN Food Summit will launch with bold new actions, solutions, and strategies to deliver progress on all 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, each of which relies on a healthier, more sustainable, more equitable food systems, and so on and so forth. So they're emphasizing big, bold, and new ideas in this area, particularly as we emerge from and also continue to combat COVID-19. And they hope to do this in a couple of different ways. And they have seven main pillars surrounding this conference. The act of urgency, and I mentioned that urgency that was mentioned in their documentation, a commitment to coming together, being respectful of one another's views, recognizing the complexities that are present in discussing food systems, the embrace of multi-stakeholder inclusivity, so making sure that a lot of folks are at the table, an embrace of the work of others, so working together, and also building trust amongst those key actors, both government, non-governmental actors, as well as in the corporate space, to build trust amongst each other to work and advance food systems. So this conference is coming up just next month. So Peter, that's interesting. So I've heard that there are some issues with this conference. Yeah, so there have been some concerns. So as I mentioned, a lot of folks are talking very highly about the summit and the possibilities, this act of urgency, and we can see why that can resonate. 
But there have been some criticisms of this upcoming summit, as well as past summits. So I want to be clear, this is nothing new. These comments and sort of criticisms and pushback against the summit is not new. And in fact, in some corners, that pushback has led to a boycott of the summit. So some stakeholders are saying, we're not going to participate. And so the question is, why? There was a recent article that was published in the past week. Elizabeth Poe and Eduardo Garcia, they wrote for Al Jazeera a quick commentary. And Elizabeth Poe is a small-scale farmer, organic farmer. And Eduardo Garcia is the head of Nicaragua's Land Workers Association. And their key point here, and they made a, a number of points about the conference, but I think the key point here is that there's a lot of consolidation in the area of food systems. And what I like to call seed to feed, there's consolidation all the way through that. There are two companies, Dow DuPont and Monsanto Bayer Crop Science, that makes up the market of 53% of all seed production, right? So half of all seed productions is flowing through these companies. Same if we look at the fertilizer. So the next step of the process, like fertilizers and things of that nature, there's consolidation all the way from seed to feed. And so the point that activists have mentioned about the conference is that these voices, these key and strong voices are often amplified in these conferences. And really the key voices in the entire conference are these conglomerates, are these corporate interests. And so they're wondering, you know, despite all the talk about and all the discussion about inclusivity, their concerns are that it isn't as inclusive as it seems on the face of it. And so they've raised these concerns. And so I'm curious to hear what you think. You know, is this a good move boycotting the UN summit? Do you also share the concerns of some of the activists, the small scale farmers, as well as the farm workers associations that have gotten behind this boycott movement? I'm curious what everyone thinks. Wow, it is very interesting to begin with. And I must say that I applaud the pushback from the small-scale farmers. Actually, it does remind me of the concept of disruptive de disruptive development that we were talking about in our last launch of Inside Leaders of Africa podcast, because, I mean, this is exactly the things that we've been talking about. And just from what you have explained, Peter, about just having two companies controlling about 53% of everything vis-a-vis yes. -vis everybody else who is a stakeholder in this entire process, I think it's quite frightening. And it gets me wondering that is this really about creating food systems that work for everybody else or is it all about power and control because we have to ask ourselves whose interests do these companies represent and i was actually looking up and i noticed that there was a call for a counter conference on this and yeah. i think that the slogan was not in our names not anymore and i was really proud of that because i think that everybody needs to have a voice at the table they need to have a say because i mean the decisions that are made at conferences like this affect everybody who's involved in this system and i think that it's only fair that everybody's voice gets to be heard yeah, I completely agree with Violet and I'm pretty sure they've tried to make their voices heard using other means. Uh, probably nobody was paying attention and uh, sometimes you just have to use the drastic means for you to get your message across. And if this is what was needed, then so be it. And I'm pretty sure that will kickstart the conversation mm -hmm. and we'll start talking about how to improve farming, especially for people who are affected directly by the decisions that are being made by big players. 
it's time that we incorporate small-scale farmers into decision-making and things like that because most of the problems that affect farmers are actually the small-scale farmers that this problem affect them because when it comes to fertilizer distribution, most of the time, they are the people that do not get access to it. When it comes to adoption of new technology and equipment, they are the last people to actually learn about new technologies and equipment. So you can see that resources, even in the farming sector, is not evenly distributed. So this is really a massive thing. This is really great that they are voicing out that they are against this arrangement. And I feel like the UN should know better that it has to be representative, not just like putting some big guys or big oligarchs on top of everything. I mean, for these two companies to control 53% is, is a lot. Agriculture in every country, agriculture is the backbone of many economies, especially in African countries and also in Asia and other places. In terms of the space, they do not have the voices. It's warring. So I like the fact that they are voicing out. They do not like what is going on and government have to rethink. And actually, this reminds me of the Indian farmers protest. If you guys heard about it, the fact that there was a bill and the farmers was like, no, this bill is not in our interest. So they protest very long. That was like the largest protest I've ever seen. Farmers coming together to say, no, we do not like this. So I feel like farmers have to talk because they feed us. And if we don't take care of them and they stop producing, how are we going to get food to eat? You get it? If I, if I may just add a little bit to what you just said, that really struck me. What really hit home for me was the fact that despite these huge corporations controlling nearly 75% of the world's food production related natural resources, they barely feed a third of the global population and are also responsible mm-hmm. for about 400 billion worth of food lost annually. Meanwhile, the small scale farmers who are marginalized and have like barely a quarter of the world's food production related natural resources provide about 70% of the world's food. So, I mean, how much cognitive dissonance do we get from just hearing those staggering statistics? And yet these are the people who are being pushed out of, you know, the places that matter. I think that's key because that's how they're couching their argument. They're not necessarily saying, Mm -hmm. well, you know, the conglomeration and monopolies are bad on the face of it per se, right? We may have some concerns about it. Well, they're saying, are these monopolies effectively solving some of the challenges that are present in the food system? What is the impact of these monopolies on the resilience of food systems when there is a crisis or bottlenecks that occur due to, say, a pandemic, for instance, right? So they're making a very clear argument that this isn't just good for us in our interests and supporting small-scale farmers, for instance. They're saying, this is what is going to create a more reliable food systems in general. And those bold solutions or part of the solutions is not being brought to the table in these conferences. And as mentioned by Violet, they have not been brought to the table in previous summits, hence the talk about the counter summits and these happen. So back to this conversation about the dominance of the big stakeholders, the monopolies, the big establishment, the big corporations on global food systems. And they are not just dominating the global food systems. It also appears to me that they dominate some of the major international development agency by funding of their funding capability. And not only that, they also dominate the funding of research in major universities across the world. Because majority of the researchers, they look forward to some of these major establishments, DuPont, Monsanto's, and the likes of this world to get to sponsor their research. And uh, so the question is this, how can the P50 
people that are advancing the alternative cause, those that are say we are pulling out of these conflicts, how do they get funded? And how do we make film their voices in a way that they are going to command the attention of policymakers? Just the same way that the big folks in the industry, in the agri-food spaces, are commanding the voices and attention of policymakers and other stakeholders. Ghana, that's a great question. And Peter, while you are the architect of this story, I'd just like to say this. Again, in the spirit of disruptive development, I know one of the tenets that we discussed was the ability to operate with limited resources. And I feel that in as much as the question is about how do they get funding, they already have a very big advantage just in the fact that they are responsible for the production of about 70% of the food that feeds the world. That is already a very huge resource. This is a voice, as much as it seems small, is very loud. And when you think about it in terms of what has happened with the pandemic, where we've had disruption in supply chains, these small scale farmers have still been able to feed people because they do have diversified food production systems, but at the same time, they're able to produce these foods within the eco-framework of the communities in which they are set up. So I think all those are resources and they would command attention if they did go ahead and boycott the mainstream system. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Violet. Peter, what is your take on this? Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of funding or not funding in the advocacy space here. I think it's a matter of mobilizing political power on the domestic level to push mm-hmm. the domestic stakeholders to play a key role. Because as you mentioned, Ghana, in terms of the influence of these key stakeholders, we've been talking a lot about corporate stakeholders, but obviously the UN is there to serve states, right? It is a state-based organization. And although, as I mentioned at the outset, they are trying to be inclusive of different stakeholders and bringing them into key conversations, we can imagine The key dominant conversations are happening between states and states are oftentimes trying to balance some of these big corporate interests. And so I don't think it's just a matter of money, but it's a matter of them leveraging their domestic political power and creating more representation for themselves and pressure groups at the domestic level, such that the domestic governments themselves that form the UN are attuned to the issues of these farmers and of these workers associations. But that's a long-term process of political Mm -hmm. mobilization, and that's going to be a long process. It's not something new. I I just want to be clear here. These organizations that have fought for the rights of small-scale farmers, as well as workers' associations in the space of agricultural workers, have been around for a long time in Latin America, in African countries, so on and so forth. So it's been around for a while, but that movement really needs to find ways in which they can pressurize their local governments to be responsive to their needs. And I think that's the step. And I think that also involves ensuring that some of these activists become involved more directly in politics, right? Because that's one of the ways that they can play a key role in these summits is through some of these elected mediums. So Eva, before we close out the conversation on this topic, I'd like to know your opinion on this. Particularly when you look at the fact that in most of the developing countries, there are issues of food insecurity and the government is always tending to look in the direction of big hack because they believe that is the way to go to solve the problem of food insecurity, particularly in the short term in many developing countries. So looking at the suggestion of Peter, what do you think about the practicability of that and how that may be the necessary narrative changer? so needed for the voices of the 
small-scale farmers and their allied organizations to be mainstream in order to bring about certain disruption in the global food systems, regulation by cooperation. I think mobilization, as Peter has said, is very, very important. I've had concerns that farmers have raised, especially when it comes to fertilizer, when it comes to other equipment that they need, which is pricey. And in that case, you hear them talking on local radio station. But in terms of mobilization, coming together as a big group, as a big community, I've not seen that. I think that is something that small skills farmers need to do because on the continent, especially in African countries, there are a lot of small skills farmers, a lot of them. When it comes to like the major corporation, just a few of them, a lot of small scale farmers, you also have people doing subsistence farming where after they fed their families, they're remaining, they're able to sell it on the market and things like that. So I feel like we need mobilization, especially where the continent still depends on farmers to produce majority of the employment for the people. I think their voices need to be heard. They have to come together. In terms of also policies, I also feel like there is a disconnect between the policymakers and what is happening on the ground. Because we have a situation where most of our farmers live in very, very remote places. And they do not have like the infrastructure facilities, like the big silos and things to be able to store food. So as you guys were saying, there's still a lot of food waste when it comes to small-scale farmers in our local content. So I feel like that is where we have to pay attention to. And that is where farmers also have to come together. And a place like Ghana like this, the attention is more paid to cocoa production because that is like one of the major exports for the country. So they pay a lot of attention to like cocoa farmers and things like that. But I also feel like those who produce food, yam and other things, we also need to pay attention to them and coming out with policies to help them, not only focusing on the cash crops that we depend for export, but I think everything needs to come together. And we also need the farmers to come together, to mobilize, to make their voices heard. Because if these farmers hadn't mobilized, having come together to speak against what is happening at the summit, I don't think that we will see an article like this and we will know what is happening even in this cycle. Because most of us, we don't really think about our farmers that much. We just go to the supermarket and buy the food and eat. But I like the fact that they are speaking out and letting us know that even in their small farms and what is going on, they are still facing some form of inequality in that space as well. There is a history of farmers associations playing a, a big advocacy and important role mm -hmm. in African countries, we have to mm -hmm. acknowledge. I'll just draw on one example. In Cote d'Ivoire, the party that brought Cote d'Ivoire through the independence process was based on agricultural associations on local levels that came together to fight for that cause of the independence of Cote d'Ivoire. So there is a rich history of farmers' activism, agrarian activism overall. And I think that mm -hmm. can provide some foundation for those conversations. But as you mentioned, Eva, that can vary across different countries. Sometimes it's a little louder in some countries rather than others. But there is that foundation. And I think they should make their voices heard. And I think one of the key things that you mentioned here, Eva, is some of the challenges that farmers make. And I believe the government can play a prominent role in facilitating some of the success of these small-scale farmers. For example, you mentioned, Eva, some of the infrastructure, storage, and facilities. Right now, all of those facilities, all that supply chain is falling on individuals to invest in that infrastructure. Government can play a role in that, right? They can have certain areas or economic zones or agricultural zones 
that allow farmers all to work cooperatively to manage that under the auspices of the government. And that allows that space to move away from some of these big investors that are present in that space and perhaps that consolidation that is there. So again, as you said, Eva, mobilization is key at the end of the day when it comes to all of these potential solutions. We can continue to discuss this conversation because it's a conversation that requires a lot of attention and that always takes a lot of time too because of the centrality of agriculture to addressing many of the problems that our world is facing today, particularly the problem of food insecurity and nutrition insecurity, which has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. So we can continue this conversation on Discord and some of our other platforms. We need to move on to the next issue for discussion today. And before we do, I have a quick question for you, Eva. So Eva, uh-huh. there is a Nigerian who recently pleaded to committing fraud against the United States. And the fraud at issue is related to money related to COVID-19 and other forms of internet scam. And this guy is known as one of the celebrities on the internet and is associated with Nigeria. What is the name of this guy here? Um, I think it's Hash Poppy. I don't know if I got a name right, Hash Poppy. Yeah, I think you got a name right, correct. So Hash Poppy is the name of the guy. And uh, when he was caught to be involved in international level fraud, he said that he wasn't guilty of the offense. So this week, he, he pleaded guilty to all the offenses, the allegations leveled against him. And he hopes to be sentenced to maximum amount of years in prison. Hush Poppy is a different animal. He's a crazy guy. He is mm. more into social media nonsense, trying to show the worth of his dubious wealth and all of those things. That's mm. what he does. He doesn't really get involved in politics. He does have interaction with the security folks because he uses them to harass some of his competitors in scam. So he's a crazy boy. He indicted one of the face of the Nigerian police in recent times. The guy they call him Kiyari. He's been involved in busting a lot of criminals in the country. So interestingly, this same Osh Poppy, when he was involved in duping UAE-based billionaire. So there was a fight between him and his collaborator in Nigeria. So what he did was to call this face of the Nigerian police, Kiyari, that he should assist him to deal with his friend. Because the firm has mattered him based on the money that they made from these uh, dubious proceeds. So at the end of the day, this police officer, he did everything for Hush Puppy. And uh, Hush Puppy invited him down to Dubai, gave him a lot of money. So when the SBI was going through the phone of Hush Puppy, they came across the contact of this particular police officer. Oh my so, goodness. So the, so the FBI is requesting for the extradition of this particular guy. Next to you, Gloria. Would like to know what is in your mind for this week. Great. All right. So Peter mentioned at the beginning that it looks like we're talking about summits this week, and he's <laughs> right. My story, <laughs> my story touches on one of the summits. This one is the Global Education Summit, which was led by the British Prime Minister and the President of Kenya. And so let me mention first that this summit was a virtual summit. But then there was a story coming out of Malawi in which Malawian president Lazarus Chakwera traveled to the UK to attend 
a virtual summit. So <laughs> this was made public on social media by the presidential spokesperson who cited internet issues in Malawi as the reason why the president had to travel physically and attend the virtual summit in the UK. <laughs> now, the story caught their attention, as you can imagine, of so many people, very curious people like us, who are asking questions, but what's the issue here? This is the virtual summit. How can this be attended in person? But that's just part of the story. There's more to this story. So the other part is that the delegation that the president brought with him to the UK was made up of three of his family members and seven other people. So it was a total of 10 and there was the wife, there was the daughter, and there was the son-in-law who also were a part of this delegation. And so the conversation just kept going. And um, eventually the president was interviewed by the BBC and he was asked all these questions about how come uh, you attending a virtual summit in person, but also you brought three of your family members and he was not pleased. His excuses were that he did not just bring these family members to the summit, but each person had a role to play. He brought people who were doing things along with him as part of this summit. And also he was pressed on the question of him, first of all, attending this in person. He said he had participated in the virtual summit before in Malawi, but this one was special because there was a specific appeal for him to come in person in the UK. That's why he arrived. Before we get into the discussions, let me also mention that it was reported that his initial delegation, he initially proposed that he wanted to bring 60 people. And so mm. this trip was paid for by the UK government. So that delegation had to be brought down to 10 people. I think the thing that brought the attention to this situation mostly, because for me, I would say, political leaders have done that in the past. Even in the West, we see this happening the most recent example is that the previous uh, president of the U.S. who had his family a part of his administration. So we've seen that being done in the past. But what is brought so much attention to the president of Malawi is that he was very vocal mm -hmm. about issues of corruption during his campaign and even in his acceptance speech last year as president. He was criticizing the parliament for using government resources to personal advantage. And he said, when it comes to power, there's not going to be any of that. And so that's where a lot of the criticism came from. And I'm just curious to hear what you all think about this story. And I'll just add to what you said, Gloria, about the response of the president of Malawi. You mentioned he went on the BBC program Hard Talk so in that program, they ask you, quote unquote, tough questions on a lot of different <laughs> matters. And they were pushing him, you know, why are you coming to this summit? All of those questions. But they were also asking some broader questions about appointments in his government, right? So this is coming against a, a broader backdrop in the country where he's appointing family members to different State Department-esque, you know, posts, things of that nature. Basically, what he said is, well, they were vetted and they were qualified and therefore they got put into those positions. And then pressed further, he said, well, my family members essentially were saying are very highly qualified and I need them as my team around me. And as you <laughs> said, Gloria, he was talking about fighting against corruption during the period of the campaign. And he is a pastor. That was a big part of his campaign. I'm a pastor, so I'm going to clean up the system as a pastor. But of course, we know there are a lot of pastors out there engaging in 
what I like to call church capitalism. It's nothing new. And But that was his whole campaign drive was around, I'm going to clean up the system. I'm a pastor. I'm going to do things differently. So it's occurring against this broader backdrop that is present in the country as well. Gloria mentioned the former yeah. president of the United States. I think the only difference is that that former president of the United States basically said, I will use nepotism. That's the difference, right? That was part of his appeal is I'm going to embrace nepotism. Whereas this president in the campaign said, I'm going to dispel or get away from nepotism. I was wondering what is your thought on this, uh, Eva? <laughs> anyway, that is your typical African president. It was not shocking because as Gloria already said, it's happened in the past. But the thing is that it's a virtual conference. So even if the UK government is paying, I expect that you still shouldn't go. And even use the money to invest in the infrastructure that you need to get good quality internet. That is a problem we've been facing on the continent. Our leaders are not investing in the infrastructure we need. And when they are sick, especially when they come to hospital, they don't invest. When they are sick, they go to the UK, they go to other places. The ordinary person cannot do that. So that is really insane and very sad. This money could have been used to invest in internet we are in the midst of a pandemic. A lot of children are out of school because they don't have access to the internet. Do you get it? So why don't we think ahead? You know, why don't we think ahead about how do we invest so that in case there is a problem, we have the solution to it? Yes, of course, Malawi will have internet problem because you've not invested in the infrastructure. Every election cycle, we hear the same thing. So when are leaders going to wake up? and invest in the infrastructure they need instead of traveling to places and attending virtual conferences and getting treatment from other places. For me, it makes them a laughing stock. And it's very sad and pathetic. You know, we need to move away from that. We have a good number of citizens who are living below the poverty line and struggling with education. That's actually part of the reason why Malawi is one of the beneficiaries of this global education initiative. If I'm touched on that, I just don't think that internet penetration and digital development is really that much of a priority for some of our African leaders. That's just my view, because uh, you can also see in the way that sometimes they come up with these internet shutdowns. They don't really think about the economic implications of some of these internet shutdowns. And it, they just keep plunging the countries deep down into the issues that we already have. And I think there needs to be an awakening in terms of the need for investment in infrastructure, investment in electricity, all the critical infrastructure that we know of that we desperately need in different corners of Africa. It's just not a priority at the moment. And I also think that there's this conflicting relationship between technological development and our political leaders, because at times they view internet penetration and digital development as a threat. You know, social media sometimes come across as being a threat to the political class. We saw what happened in Nigeria with Twitter. We have the government who's just come out and shut down Twitter without assessing what are the economic implications in the country. And I think there just need to be a change of focus, of priorities, and also putting in place people who are qualified. People actually will know what they're talking about in terms of technology, in terms of renewable energy. We need people in the right places for us to really see true change. According to the World Bank, as of 2019, Malawi's internet penetration was at 13.8%. So that is really, really low. This reinforces the need for Malawi to spend more resources on expanding 
be a sustained infrastructure, internet infrastructure facility in the country. And it also reinforces the need for them to spend a lot of money building capacity in this particular area. And it's from here that we are going to move to the next issue for discussion on today's edition of this week. And before we do, I have a quick question for you, Peter. There is a country in Africa where the late president of the country spent significant amount of time denying COVID-19. He died as the of COVID-19. But on July 28th, the president of the country, the new president of the country, nationally took COVID-19 vaccine. What is the name of this country? And what is the name of the president of Nigeria? So that would be Tanzania. And the president <laughs> is the new president that took over after the former president purportedly died of COVID-19. That's Mama Samia of Tanzania. You got it. And uh, it's from here that I'm going to move to you, Violet. What has been on your mind for this week? Ah, so apart from the summits, and just on a lighter note, when I was listening to the BBC interview and I heard that President Chakwera's daughter is named Violet, the one apparently yes. who has been appointed as a diplomat to Belgium. I was in stitches. I'm still traumatized. <laughs> but anyway. I don't know why I didn't mention that part. Sorry, sorry, Violet. I read it and I was just literally laughing because I was thinking about you. I'm like, oh, Violet. <laughs> <laughs> we have been busy, embroiled in all manner of scandals. But anyway, what's been on my mind has been Tunisia. So there's been some very quite interesting stories that have been coming out of the country this week. And that has been of the president's firing of the prime minister. That has made for a lot of stories and intrigue coming out of the country. So Tunisia has been on a COVID-19 vaccination drive, but apparently it hasn't gone well. And so there have been mass protests. And as a result of this violent mass protest, the president decided to sack the prime minister and suspended parliament. However, when the president decided to fire the prime minister, there was a chaotic response both from the prime minister's supporters and other factions within the government. So the president, who is called K. Said, he was elected in 2019. He announced that he was taking over after he fired the prime minister over the mass protests that were arising from the bungled mass COVID-19 vaccination. However, it has been branded as a coup and a hostile takeover of power by the president. And that's coming from the party that supports the prime minister, which is the Enada party. The prime minister is called Hichem Mechichi, and he has the backing of the largest party in parliament. The president is quoting the 2014 constitution, stating that Article 80 basically gives him the right to suspend parliament if he feels that the country is in danger. So basically, there's been mixed reactions from this action of the president, and some of his supporters are claiming that, oh, finally, the president is being decisive and doing things that need to be done. But on the other hand, his opponents are claiming that this is basically a new dictator coming into power and the president has no right to do this. I really can understand why somebody would think that the president is turning it into a dictator. Although I watched parts of the address that the president gave explaining why 
he fired the prime minister and he cited some provisions in the constitution that gave him the rights to do so. But I mean, I still think that it, it can be scary for a normal person to look at the president just firing a number of politicians across the board. It's not just the prime minister freezing the functions of the parliament. Can you share about how this system of governance in Tunisia work and why would somebody be afraid of this move by the president? I could see why you would say that because typically the president is at the helm of things. But so for Tunisia, the way it's structured is that the president basically oversees military and foreign affairs. And then we have the prime minister basically looking at all the internal workings of the country. But then we have the president firing the prime minister. And for a long time, there have been political opponents. However, where I say the intrigue comes in, as I mentioned earlier, that there's a, a little bit of intrigue. After the bungled COVID-19 vaccination drive, the prime minister fired the minister for health who happens to be an ally of the president. And then the president, I don't want to say responded by firing the prime minister, but the events happened in that order. And so it created a little bit of intrigue. So yes, the president did cite the constitution and of course showed that it clearly backed his actions because under the 2014 constitution, it provides for him to suspend parliament if he thinks that the government is in any kind of imminent danger, and he has suspended parliament for 30 days. Again, according to the 2014 constitution, it provides that there needs to be a special court to decide disagreements like this. However, that special court has never been set up since the 2014 constitution was put into place. And so the legal and political framework is unclear. And so this gray area is really what's providing for all the confusion that's going on at the moment. Different factions, for example, the speaker is claiming that this is a call against the revolution and the constitution and is calling for the Tunisian people to come up and defend their constitution. Mm. I think Tunisia is an interesting country to look at because when you look at all the countries that happened to have the Arab Spring, Tunisia so far has been touted as the success story of them all. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's having problems like this and since the Arab Spring, Tunisia has had nine governments and none of them has been stable and democracy is yet to take root. Probably that says something about democracy on the African continent, especially in North Africa. So just building on what you said, Violet, this issue of instability of democracy that you've seen and talking about the number of governments that have come and gone in Tunisia, I think it reflects a broader concern in society. And if we look at the Afrobarometer survey data, this comes from round seven in 2018 in Tunisia, 46% of Tunisians prefer democracy to any form of government and the others either don't care if it's democracy or want some other form of regime type. And then if we look at satisfaction, because we're not only just concerned whether people demand democracy, but whether they're satisfied with the democracy that they're getting, only 46%, same figure there, 46% are either fairly satisfied or very satisfied. That means support for democracy, as well as the supply of democracy are both underwater, so to speak. So they're under 50%. And that's a lot lower than a lot of different African countries where you see the numbers of support for democracy just at face value in the 70s or the 80s. 
12%, for example. And I think what we see here from the Tunisian perspective is a real critical interrogation of what democracy means and what democracy can do. And so we think about the Arab Spring that you mentioned, Violet, early on. The Arab Spring touched many North African countries and Middle Eastern countries as well. And Tunisia's was held up, as you mentioned, Violet, as that one success case. And there was a lot of hope mm -hmm. that as being the success case, we're going to see sort of the fruition of democracy in North Africa, and that's going to cascade in the region, both in North Africa, as well as the broader continent as well. And so we don't see that. Even the citizens that are there and are experiencing it are concerned about some aspects of democracy. And so when you don't have that present, you leave the regime open to potential attacks, potential for instability. And we are seeing that play out in a very visible way right now in, in the country, as you've described, Violet. Uh, yeah, that's Eva, true. Yeah, if I like to know your opinion on this. I feel like the COVID-19 has really, really exposed a lot of the fundamentals that we have in our societies. And that is what is actually affecting not just Tunisia. We've seen the NSAS in Nigeria protests. We've seen even the fix the country protests that has been going on in Ghana. And actually there is a big protest coming up in August 4th. So it's a lot of things. People in society are experiencing a lot of economic challenges, especially in this period of COVID-19. And also the vaccine distribution has not been fair. People want to be able to go out, to have a livelihood, to be able to make some money or make some ends meet, but it's not happening. That is what we are seeing in Tunisia. This is not just a protest about the COVID-19 vaccine. It has a lot of things from the economic and also the way the country is being governed. You get it? The way the country is being managed and run by these people. The fact that they've had changes in government tells you that the people are not satisfied with what is going on. This is something that we have to look into. And actually moving forward, as the COVID-19 cases, I know that it's going up in some places, but I'm sure and I'm hopeful that COVID-19 will be something of the past. We have to start to reflect on some of the things that we are doing both our leaders, especially the politicians, our governance. Because if you do not serve the people who brought you to power, you're going to face the consequences. If the people are feeling much of the economic challenges, they are actually going to rise and protest. And we are seeing that in a lot of places, not just in Africa. Violet, you mentioned the Anada Party, for example. So the Anada Party is a party that is more on the Islamist end of the spectrum in the country. Not quite like we see more Islamic parties in other countries, but more on that end, more of the conservative side of the spectrum. And at the same time in Tunisia, you have a more liberal end of the spectrum as well. So this Tunisia crisis is not only just a commentary on the regime. It's not only taking place in the context of COVID-19, but it's taking place, as Viva has alluded to, in the midst of polarization and instability and concerns that have been there before COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to leave this conversation thinking, oh, this is all due to COVID-19. And we make a mistake when we begin to go around the world and say, oh, this is because of COVID-19. Oh, this is because of COVID-19. But there are long-standing concerns that are present. Polarization, failures of service delivery, failures to deal with inequality that may be coming up to the surface. It's drawing attention to these issues, but they've been there for a while. And in Tunisia, that lack of support for democracy, some of those fundamental concerns with the way in which the economy works have been there for the last 10 years, since the Arab Spring 10 years ago. And so we just see that come out in this era. And I think that's an important thing to think about. 
Thank you, Peter, for that dimension to the conversation. It is on this note that we are going to draw the curtain on today's edition of this week. We'd like to thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us again for our next episode of Leaders of Africa this week. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to Leaders of Africa this week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. You can also find us on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and many more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesday. Kindly join us on our Discourse community to continue the conversation. And please do follow the Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram for all new and great content. Thank you and bye. Thank you.